Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca. All right. Did you see the video? Maybe you were chatting. Uh, Maybe that's fitting in the sense that um, it is the setup and teardown that happens apart from our viewing most often. And uh, if you're in this service, you probably are more apt for the teardown. If you are just like, it's too cold to go out in the morning this morning and you thought you'd come out when it got nice and hot. Uh, for the second service, maybe you usually go, but set up and tear down is what we uh, need help in. It's a continual need since we launched the church. I don't know that there'll ever be a time like we have too many volunteers uh, for that ministry. So uh, if the Lord would lay that on your heart, uh, maybe today would be the day where you want to practice run. I was told between the break that there is uh, one person uh, ready to tear down uh, today. So Definitely could use some help, unless we just don't love that one person, uh, okay? So, um, you know, so I, I think we, we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe want to help out, okay? So, well, we're going to get into Genesis 38. Um, I said last week, I'm like, uh, I'm not sure what we're going to say about that. Uh, and, and as I read on Monday, I was still kind of concerned, but... Um, what, 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 uh, with my study this week, I have been encouraged. Um, it, there's a little bit of like, why is this here, right? We mentioned last week 37 through 50, predominantly about Joseph. And we were introduced to him last week, and we were going to see a whole lot about him. But like one chapter in, and now it's Judah. Like, why, why now? Uh, is this, is this kind of like the, Ishmael story and the Esau story where Joseph, he's the faithful chosen one. And then, you know, we have this one who's not chosen and then this is his story. And as you, as you begin the chapter, you're kind of like, yeah, that, that's what this seems like. But by the time we get to the end of the chapter, you see, no, actually what's happening here is that not only is God working in miraculous ways with Joseph's life, but he's also doing it in Judah's life. Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are here today. And, and, and I think the same thing is going on with Judah's life. But the interesting thing is, it's not those who have sinned against him. It's actually him sinning, walking in his own sin. Not being sinned against, but willfully sin, sinning. And as we go through this chapter... You, you, you're like, um, should we be talking about this in church? You know, this is, you know, if you're going to rate sermons, this is a rated R kind of sermon, right? It's nothing that I'm going to be saying to embellish it. It's just simply in the text. And, and there's sometimes where people are like, why, you know, why is that in the Bible? Well, I think we're a little hypocritical when we say that kind of stuff. Because the difference between Judah and you and I is that Judah's life was actually written down in the Bible. Ours is kind of kept hidden, right? We all have sin in our lives. Um, no one here is the Messiah, right? So I know that we all have sin in our lives. There's no one here without sin. The Bible tells us that. You're like, I don't, you don't know me, Pastor. I don't need to know you, right? You were born in sin and you will die in sin if things aren't changed. And this morning, I want us to look at this, this chapter on sin that through the lens of a physical heart, all right? Physical heart. I think there's a lot of parallels between our physical heart and our spiritual heart. A physical heart, um, there are a lot of people who think they can do whatever they want and their physical heart is going to be just fine, Right? Like, I'm pretty sure chips are supposed to be a part of every meal. Potato chips, right? And, and, and fast food, four or five times a week, not a problem. And I can, like, down those energy drinks, like, 
no worries, it's not going to impact me, right? I just need a little extra energy. And, you know, some people need exercise. That's not me. My heart is like 100% okay. Until what? It's not okay. Right? And all of a sudden, the docs are like, hey, you got, you got to do something about this or you're not going to be on this earth any longer. Now, I've called this sermon Autopsy of the Human Heart because I think spiritually we can do the same thing. Spiritually, we think we can live however we want and our hearts are fine. Our spiritual hearts are fine. Many people, if you go around our city, be like, oh yeah, I'm spiritual. I'm super spiritual. And, and then you kind of drill down on that and it really has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. It has, maybe, maybe it's another religion. Maybe it's just like, I just feel close to this thing that's out there, you know, I call it the universe. Some people call it God, but you know, whatever. I mean, we're all good. But, but, but what the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that apart from Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, you have a dead heart without Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's pretty narrow-minded. Yes, it is. Jesus is the only way that you and I might have life. And so we need to figure this out before it's too late. Some people, their physical hearts, they don't find that out until they open their eyes and they're no longer on this earth, right? It just all of a sudden hits them. Other people, they get the doctor come along and say, hey, this is what you need to do. And I want us to go to the master physician the Lord God today, to look at our spiritual hearts. Is there any blockages in our hearts that need to be taken care of if we are going to get to God? So before we do that, I, I want us to, before we get into the Word of God, that is, is, is the Word of God says is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit as it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that's what God's going to do. He's going to do some heart surgery on us this morning. But before we do that, I want us to pray and ask God to help us in our time together. We pray. God, we love you. We're so thankful um, that, Lord, you do reveal sin in our lives. So, Lord, it can be dealt with. And, God, I, I pray even this morning as we look at Judah's sin that, Lord, we would come under conviction of sin in our own lives. God, if there would be things that we are walking in rebellion against you in, God, show us those things. And God, I pray that you would just not show us so that we might acknowledge them, but Lord, that you bring conviction in our life that this is a serious problem and that we need to do something about it. And so God, would you lead us? Would you guide us? So thankful for your Holy Spirit that does convict us of sin, that does lead us to eternal life. So God, may you have your way in our lives as this preacher preaches. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, everybody needs a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand. And um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 38. We want to be able to look down for ourselves and see what the Bible actually says. The pastor's not making this stuff up. It's actually in the Word of God. We want to be able to see that. And as I've been talking about these blockages, right, if you have 100% blockage, that's not good, okay? That's going to be a big problem for your physical heart. Well, so spiritually as well. And, and, and God has given us a physical reminder of the fact that we are separated from him. In the Garden of Eden, we could, we could uh, come into the presence of God. Adam and Eve had that, that freedom in humanity. They, they were able to walk in, in the presence of the Lord but when sin came in, they could no longer do that. And they were actually separated from him, from the garden. They, was, they were no longer able to enter into the garden. And sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59 says this, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He's, he's helping us to see that to have sin in your life is a serious problem. It separates you from God. But, note, God is, not, God is able to save. And this is what we're going to see in the text here this morning. 
but you must be convicted of the problem. It just is like you're not, nobody's like going to say, oh yeah, sign me up for open heart surgery before somebody actually tells you what's wrong, right? Like, oh, I guess, you know, I guess I'll go and get my heart cut open for no reason. Like nobody's doing that, right? The only reason you would do that is if you're like, no, there's a serious problem here and I need to do something about it. That's the only reason. So it is with our sin. The only, the only people that do anything with their sin problem are those who are like, no, this is a serious problem. Yes, I am a sinner, but not only am, is, that, is that a problem for, for me on this earth, it's a problem for me for eternity because it separates me from God. Now, to use this heart illustration, I want us to see that there are four ways that our spiritual heart, hearts are blocked from God. It's four ways that our spiritual hearts are blocked from God. First, we're going to see we're blocked from rebellion. The reason that we have this blockage in our hearts from God is rebellion. We see this in verses 1 through 7. Now, just a little bit of context. If you were with us last week, you'll know, but if, in case, just in case you weren't, Joseph can, is, is the favored son. Uh, Jacob loves him very much, and he's made him this fancy robe, but all his brothers hate him. They hate him because he's a tattletale. They hate him because dad favors him. And they hate him because he's had, he's had these dreams where they're all going to bow down to him. And so their reaction is violent. First they talk about killing him. Then Reuben's like, hey, let's not kill him. You know, let's just throw him in a pit because he was hoping to save him. But then he's in the pit and they see these guys come along. And Judah, who is front and center in this text, Judah's like, hey, let's just sell him. We'll make some money off of it, and he'll be gone. We'll never see him again. He'll be a slave somewhere, and he'll, he'll be gone. And then we're going to tell Dad that, you know, well, this is his robe, and there's some blood on it. Like, is, it, well, is this his robe? We're not sure. And Dad, Jacob's like, he's dead. My son has been torn up by wild animals, and, and he refuses to be comforted. This is how we ended. So it's not a surprise that Judah doesn't want to stick around in this place. We verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Right? In many ways, Judah is following the pathway of his uncle Esau. Right? I'm going to go set off on my own. I'm going to do my own thing. Right? I don't care about my family. I don't care about any kind of promises. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to move to this place, like southwest of Jerusalem. And... and you know, I'm just kind of tired about the situation I was in at home. I mean, it would be pretty brutal, to be honest, right? Waking up every morning, watching dad walk around moping, knowing that Joseph isn't really dead, but you sold him into slavery, and that's what you're facing every day around the household, right? So, yeah, not, not a shocker that he's like, yeah, I'm going to move on, right? And, and so he moves, and he's got this buddy by the name of Hira. Uh, Hira is one of those guys that's bad news. Anytime we see Hira's name in the text, he's doing something wicked, right? Uh, maybe you have a buddy like this. You know, you're, you, you're not too bad to keep on the straight and narrow, but then you get around this guy and it's like, like you're just going to, sure, sure, let's do that. Ha ha, that'll be fun. And, you know, whatever. You get yourself into trouble every time you're with this person. And can I just... Encourage you, warn you, whether you're a teenager or a 50-year-old, if that if have a hira in your life and they are, have that kind of influence in you, then you need to cut them out of your life until you're the only one doing the influencing, right? If you're not strong enough in the Lord to be in that place, then you should not be hanging out with the hiras of this world who are going to tear you down. And we're going to see how wicked Judah has become as he moves to this place with the Canaanites. So, verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. All right? Judah does not care about the opinions of others as to who he should marry. Now, again, just to reset things, Abraham makes a really big deal about Isaac and who he should marry. Do not marry a Canaanite, right? 
you can't marry a Canaanite. I guess the servant to go get him another wife who's not a Canaanite. And, and then Rebecca, Isaac's wife, she says of Esau's wives who are Canaanites, I loathe my life because of these Canaanite women. And says to, says to um, Isaac, hey, make sure Jacob doesn't marry a Canaanite woman. And he say like, hey, go. So the fact that he's wearing a Canaanite woman, bad news. Okay, bad news. But he doesn't care. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's walking in rebellion against God and his ways. Now, the wording here, saw, took. Anytime in Genesis we see this saw, took, it is to do with lust. To do with lust. He does not, we don't even get to know this gal's name. Right? It's a daughter of Shua. That's, that's who we know her as. Daughter of Shua. And, and his whole reason for marrying her would seem to be physical attraction. Right? He, he, he's really attracted to her, and so he marries her. And the result of their being married, verse 3, she has some children. And she conceived and bore a son, called his name Er. She conceived again, bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name she- uh, Shelah. Not, no, Shelah. I said that in the first verse too. Shelah would be really bad. Sh- Shelah. Well, we'll say Shelah, okay? Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Okay? Again, with, as it was Esau... Able to have children, has three sons. But as we're going to soon see, these three sons are not godly men. They're not desiring to follow after God and his ways. Not a shocker in the fact that they're living amongst the Canaanites. And both Judah and his wife don't seem to have any care for the things of God either. Moses fast forwards us to verse 6, where now Er is now an adult. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar, also likely a Canaanite woman from that area. Ironically, uh, Judah marries whoever he wants to, but for his son, he'll choose a wife. And so he chooses this woman, but we find out that the marriage is short-lived. Verse 7 but Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's pretty sobering when we think about that. This is the first human that we have seen as an individual being taken out by the Lord. Um, the flood, obviously all the earth, other than eight people, are taken out because of their wickedness. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, we see that whole city, that whole area taken out because of their sin. But now one person is singled out by the Lord and he's killed because of his wickedness. We don't know why the Lord does this. We, we, we don't know what specific sin he has been doing that God cause, causes God to do this, but he does it. If God were to strike us down for any sin or a sin in our lives, none of us would be here. But so it seems like this guy is just kind of taking it to the next level, and God kills him because of his rebellion against him. He becomes the poster child, the reminder for all of us that what our sins deserve is death. All of us, again, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And so you can be like air where God just decides that you're done. Your life is over. Of course, nobody else knows that God has done this, right? It wasn't Judah. Judah didn't get a message from God that God was like, yeah, I, I was the one who took him out. He thinks he's died I think, as we continue to read the text, because of his wife. Somehow she's connected, right? But he does not see that this is from God. So we, we, we don't know, even today, maybe God d- does these kinds of things. We don't know that for sure. But let us be warned that the wages of sin is death. And so whether he would shorten your life here on this earth or 
you would live a full life and then die. You would not just die physically, but you would die eternally apart from him, as we're going to see in just a moment. So that is the first sin that is blocking mankind's way to God. Secondly, we see it blocked with deception, blocked with deception. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Okay, now, um, I don't know that anybody is from a culture where this is done, but apparently the World Wide Web says that this is still done in some cultures. It was being done even in the time of Jesus. If you want to look at the biblical precedent for this, it's found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to, through 10. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. It was a Leverite marriage is what it was described as there. Now, this is pre-law. So even in this Canaanite culture, this was something that was done. Why is this being done? Ross helps us out. If a man died without children, his brother or nearest relative would marry his widow for the purpose of having a child who would carry on the family name of the deceased and who would inherit his property. All right? So in this case, heir, his brother, Onan, was to then fulfill the duty of the Leverite uh, vow and perform the deed, and a child would then be born... And that child then would be heir's child, not Onan's child, right? That's how it'd work. Then that child, when it came to whatever heir was supposed to inherit, that child would inherit it, okay? That's really key because of what we're going to see here next. Note as well, in the, in the Deuteronomy passage, the, the, the brother was supposed to marry her, he would also take responsibility for her. That's not what's happening here, right? There's no talk of marriage. He's following the Canaanite way, not the biblical way that we found out, find out later on. So, in other words, Judah doesn't care about Tamar. He only cares about his name, his son's name being remembered. Verse 9, But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. Now, Onan is wicked on like several levels here. Okay? First of all, Onan could have said no. He said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Um, we see that actually in the book of Ruth, Right? The, the, the person that was the closest relative, they went to that person and they're like, yeah, I'm not interested. He could have done that. If you would do that, it would bring shame on you. When you read Deuteronomy 25, they would have this ceremony before the elders of the town where the woman would take off the man's sandal and then she would spit in his face. That's what was to be done if you said no to this. Okay? So, I mean, there's some gravity to it, right? This is a big deal that you would, you would honor the brother and do this. Onan is making everybody think he is doing it, right? I'm fulfilling the bow. I'm fulfilling the bow. Wow, look at, look at Onan. He's, he's being such a good brother. Is he being a good brother? No, he's not being a good brother. He has zero intention on fulfilling the vow. He's not doing what he's doing for procreation. He's doing it for kicks. That's what he's doing. It's kind of crass, but it's right there in the text. That's, that's what he's doing. And so he's fooling everybody else, but guess what? He's not fooling God. And, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. He put him to death also. <clears throat> it's interesting the sin of Onan is really a lot like the sin of Judah. Doesn't care about his brother Joseph, so he sells him away. Sells him into slavery. Onan doesn't care about his brother Er and does what he wants to do. But God brings about his death as a result of that. God is not okay with deception. 
Owen is not the only person who's ever been killed in the Bible because of deception. Probably the most famous, as far as New Testament goes, Ananias and Sapphira. Right? Acts chapter 5. Hey, let's do this. (laughs) This is going to be great. We're going to tell everybody we sold the land for 500,000. Now, you and I know we sold it for a million, but we're going to take that 500,000 and we're going to give it to them and say, we've sold the land for 500,000 and we're giving all the money to the church. And then everybody's going to think, wow, look at that couple. They're so amazing. And then we'll keep the 500,000 back to take care of ourselves. Could they have sold the land for the million and given the church 500,000 and that would have been fantastic? That would have been fantastic. But instead, they want to deceive others into thinking that there's someone that they're not. And God kills both Ananias and Sapphira for that sin. Like lying, deceiving is a really big deal to God. I mean, we, we, we in the church, we kind of like to classify sin. Like, oh yeah, there's a little sin. There's a medium sin. Like deception right at the top. And so God strikes him dead. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. It's got to be her. It's got to be her. And my boys are great boys. Can't be anything that they were doing, right? So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Deception, again, right? You wonder where these boys got their sin problems from. I mean, they, I mean it, was, it resides in their own hearts, but they're falling right in their, foot, their, their father's footsteps, right? And so he's being deceptive as well. And I would remind us again this morning that the sin of deception separates us from God. It blocks us, again back to the heart analogy, it blocks us from getting to God. So we've seen the sin of rebellion, the sin of deception. Third reason that our spiritual hearts are blocked from God, blocked by fornication. Blocked by fornication. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. I mean, this guy, you would think maybe he'd start waking up as to what's going on in his life. He's certainly not being blessed. There's not more life coming in his life. He's had two sons die, now his wife. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, my warning, Hira, the Dulamite. You guys... You guys ever been to one of these things, these sheep shearing things? Hey, who's been to one? Okay, <laughs> probably not, right? So you're like, okay, uh, what's the big deal? What, why, why, why is this in here? If you read the Old Testament, anytime there's this sheep shearing going on, it's like a party. It's like a festival, what's going on. And so Moses wants us to know Judah had a time of mourning, but the time of mourning is over. And now it's time to go party. Lots of food's going to be eaten, lots of beverages consumed, right? Above normal. It's a party. This is what he's going to, and he's going with his old buddy, Hira. What could go wrong, right? When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was, was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Okay. She puts on a veil. Why is she putting on a veil? So he doesn't know who she is. And she dresses in such a way that she's seen to be a prostitute. So we're not told, she just covers herself up. We don't know what that means. But she goes to this location and she's dressed in a certain way that she looks like a prostitute. This is the plan. When Judah saw her, he thought 
She was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. In other words, he doesn't recognize her. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? Now, if, if we haven't caught this already, I want to just kind of make it clear. Like, Judah's not a good guy. Like, try, try, like, you think Tamar would have come up with this plan for Joseph? I know what I'll do. I'll dress up like a prostitute. And then when Joseph comes to town, this is what will happen. She, she would not have come up with that plan for Joseph. We're going to see next week that he was a man who, who, who knew purity was important. How, how could he ever, he, what he's going to say is, how could I ever sin against God in that way? So, but Judah, she's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'll dress up like a prostitute. Why does she do that? Because she knows that this guy is likely to, to be looking for that kind of activity. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the only way we can read this. Is he already has a reputation of being, like we could just put it in today's language, a bit of a schmuck. Right? But this is, this is where Judah's at. This is his wicked heart. So, the ruse is working. The business transaction is happening. What will you give me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. I mean, I mean, I like the way Hughes puts it like this. Having no goat for payment, Judah readily gave Tamar his most personal items, which declared his individual and corporate identity. In modern terms, he gave her his license and his social insurance number. Or if you're an American, social security number. This is what he's, this is what he's giving her. I mean... I, I, I heard it said once, and it's so fitting. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. I mean, what is he thinking here? Like, you, you, you're giving this to a complete stranger who you believe is involved in this desperate kind of lifestyle. Like, <laughs> what are you thinking? But he's not. He's not thinking. His desire is to fulfill his lust, and so whatever. Then we're told, and she rose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. The child that she's pregnant with, it's not Judah's grandchild, it's his child. Now, under the laws of the time, Again, in the Canaanite culture, Tamar had a right to be the mother of Judah's child if no one else was willing to fulfill the Leverite duty. It's important in the sense of like, we can understand what Tamar is doing here. She doesn't go after another person to marry. She's trying to fulfill the Leverite law. Now, no one knows what's happened. Only Tamar. She quickly returns home, we're told, and she puts on the garments of her widowhood. Nobody seems to notice that she went away and came back. Not, they won't notice for a little bit yet. Of course, deception, rebellion in our world is rampant, and so is sexual sin. Sexual sin is rampant in our world and the devastation that takes place as a result of it cannot be hidden. The so-called sexual revolution of the 60s, what has that resulted in? Broken homes and broken families. Children being raised in single-parent homes. Disease. Broken hearts. 
Then, of course, there's the wickedness of prostitution and sexual slavery in our world, rampant. God gave us the gift of sex to be enjoyed between one man and one wife in the covenant of marriage for life. Anything apart from that is sin. You can't, well, you know, in my case, it's, di- it's not different in your case. And God is not okay with it. And I want you to hear this morning that this sin separates you from God. It's crazy that I have to kind of like press home the point in church. But the problem is the church has watered down the things as much as society has. And so we must see things for the way that God sees them if we are to do what needs to be done. If we think sexual sin is not a big deal before God, guess what? You're going to do nothing about it. But if you see that it actually separates you from God and the result of that could result in your eternal condemnation, that's a, that's a big deal. And you need to do something about it. For ways that our spiritual hearts are blocked from God, rebellion, deception, fornication. Lastly, blocked through hypocrisy. Blocked through hypocrisy. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Interesting. Judah doesn't even bother going back to the place. Right? That shows you how much respect he has for this woman. Maybe, maybe you know, his buddy was like, hey, I'm heading into town anyways. I, you told me what happened there. <laughs> you know, no big deal. You know, I'll take the goat. We'll take care of the thing. I'll get your stuff back. Shocker, they can't find her. He asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who's at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Now, cult prostitute, what's going on here? Like, you know, she wasn't called a cult prostitute just a few verses ago. I think... Ironically, what his buddy's trying to do is to kind of make Judah not look so bad. You know, because during a festival like this, the culture of the Canaanites was for men to go to the cult prostitutes so that you would have a bumper crop that year. I mean, isn't that, isn't that crazy? That was their religion. You would go to these cult prostitutes, you'd commit the act, and that would then the gods would see that and produce a bounty for your harvest. That would be, that was their wicked, twisted religion. But for the people of the culture, it was like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, we haven't seen anyone like that. I mean, your, your buddy Judah, you know, I mean, that wouldn't, he's trying to make him look good because nobody goes to like those kind of prostitutes. I mean, you see the hypocrisy starting to leak out here, right? Not, not so concerned about the act itself. I mean, we're just concerned that everybody would think we're still good people. It continues on in verse 23. And Judah replied, let, the, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Hira, like you and I know, like you're my witness, I tried to pay for the pledge. She wasn't there, right? So we're good. Like, you're my witness. I don't want to become a laughing stock. I mean, how terrible would that be? I mean, a fornicator, not a big deal. Laughing stock, now that's a big deal. I mean, how many people are like that? So, so concerned about protecting their reputation. While meanwhile, they're doing all this stuff that if anybody else knew about it, they would have no reputation. Desperate to keep the reputation, but not desperate enough to change the pathway of their life. Well, the hypocrisy continues. But three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. 
And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Man alive. There is one big old hypocrite, right? Immorality? Are you kidding me? She committed immorality? And he can't, he can't kill her quick enough, right? He's judge and jury. She must pay for her sin. I mean, he, he, what about your own sin, Judah? What about your own sin? Well, he's totally blind to that. But this gal, who I'm pretty sure she's the reason that God, that both my sons died, right? He doesn't think God killed him. He, he thinks that she's probably the reason. And so he's all too quick to accuse her of immorality, and that she should be killed. Now, as I've been studying this week, I've been reminded of, of King David. King David. Many of you know King David's story. Man after God's own heart. Like, you're just like, you love him. He's the underdog. Like, he just lives this amazing life. And then when the kings are off at war, everything comes off the rails because he's not at war. He's not doing what he should be doing. Instead, he commits adultery with this woman called Bathsheba. So now what? Got to damage control. We got we to fix this thing. Hey, Uriah, why did you come back and be in town here? And hey, go be with your wife. Why? Because he's hoping that he won't kind of figure out what's happened and he'll think the child is his. But Uriah, what? He's a righteous man and he won't do that. He's like, how could I do this when, when everyone's off at war? So then David, he, he, he plans a workplace accident, right? This is how we're going to do it. I want you, because I was the commander, hey, everybody go up close to the wall, and then you guys, you, you peel back and leave him by himself. Why? Because he wants him killed. That works. David murdered Uriah. He's responsible for his death. And nobody knows. The plan works. After the period of mourning, he marries Bathsheba, and time goes on. Nobody knows. But who does know? God knows. So he sends Nathan the prophet and he tells him the story about this rich man who takes advantage of this poor man. And he kind of, you know, he does it upright, right? And so by the time the story is done, David is fired up. And we read in 2 Samuel 12, verse 5, that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Exact same reaction as Judah. Blind to their own sin. Righteous when it comes to everybody else's sin. I know exactly what those people deserve. Hypocrisy keeps many people far from God. Blind to your own sin, thinking that you are basically a good person. I mean, think about probably the best example of hypocrisy are the Pharisees. The Pharisees, in the time of Jesus, they were supposed to be the ones leading people to God. And on the outward, everybody's like, oh, what holy men, right? They'd walk around in their piousness and do these elaborate prayers. But Jesus said what? Their hearts are far from me. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it's very possible you could come to church for decades. You learn the little churchanity, like, oh yeah, I learned a few verses now too, kind of fit in. And you can come on a Sunday morning and kind of get through the sermon. Ugh. And then leave and have your hearts just as wicked as the, everybody else who does not know Christ for the rest of the week. And then come back in here and put on your little churchanity mask. And that will still condemn you. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that, that 
should sober us. And, he, and they're like, well, we did all this stuff for you. And he say, depart from me. I never knew you. We must have Christ in our lives if any of this is going to change. The consequences for all of this, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 the previous verse, he says, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What are the consequences of this? As I mentioned, with a physical heart, if you knew that you're about, you know, this one's got like 98% and this one's got, you know, like, you'd be like, let's get the surgery done tomorrow, Right? So it is spiritually. I'm trying to warn us that we need new hearts. You look at this like there's four blockages. I guess we need a quadruple bypass. It's not going to work. Why? Because you can get those four things cleaned up. It's going to be replaced by envy, jealousy, gossip, lust, whatever. You're going to put, so you don't, you don't just need your heart repaired. You need a whole new heart. Well, how does that work? Well, we see this as we get to the end of the text. We have to follow the plan of the master surgeon, Jesus Christ. It starts with confession. If you would want a new heart, it starts with confession. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. You know, Tamar's on her way to be burned. So she's on her way out. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Right? It seems like a foregone conclusion. She's going to be killed, but she has these things. And she says, hey, this is the father of the baby whose things these are. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. The first time. It's the first time that we see Judah not trying to lie, not trying to scheme his way out of this. He just admits that he is in the wrong, that he has sinned. This is the first time in, in the whole text so far of Judah, the life of Judah, that we've seen this. He actually comes under the conviction of his sin. If anyone be saved, they must come under the conviction of sin in their lives. They got to stop holding on to this, well, I'm basically a good person thing. That will only condemn you. That would only continue to keep you separated from God. You must come and confess that you are a sinner. Again, King David reacts in the same way than Judah does here. After Nathan had pointed out that he is the rich man, that he is the one who has sinned, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. We must come under the conviction of sin if we are to be saved. Not, not just that you are someone that sometimes does bad things. That's not going to save you. I mean, I, I don't know that anyone, you, you can have a conversation with anyone, that nobody's going to be like, well, I've never done anything wrong. Like, nobody's that bold, right? The difference between the person who is saved and the person who's not saved is the person who's not saved doesn't think that what they've done is a big deal. The person who comes under the conviction of sin and is saved is the person who understands that their sins have separated them from God and that the wrath of God is due to them as a result of their sins. And there's holy fear and they understand they must do something or they will die eternally. And so we must confess if we would be saved. Secondly, there needs to be repentance there needs to be repentance. The, the person who is fully convinced of their sin is also repentant. We read that, that with Tamar, Judah did not know her again. 
He did not know her again. There's this, this marked change in his life. We, we've seen this pattern in his life where there's a woman, he just takes her, right? That was the, the story of his wife. This is the story of Tamar, who he thinks is a prostitute. But now there's a change of direction. And I'm going to give you a little bit more because you're like, well, that's pretty weak evidence, okay? There's going to be more evidence that this is, this is the salvation time for Judah, but again, I want us to think about David. David in Psalm 51, if you're, if you're looking at what does is, what is true repentance look like? What does it look like to, to pour out your heart before God, admitting your sin and desiring to change? Psalm 51 is beautiful. And I would encourage you to just meditate on Psalm 51. But in the middle of it, in Psalm 51, verse 10, he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. This word for create, it's only used of God. And David understands that left to himself, he will be condemned. He'll continue to, to, to walk in sin. But so he says, God, change my heart. Give me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This whole prayer is like, I can't do it, Lord. But if you would do this, I then will walk in a repentant way. I will no longer pursue my sin, but by your grace, by your power, by your work, I will walk in repentance. You alone, Lord, can do it. You alone are faithful, which brings us to our last element that is needed for a new heart, faith. Faith, we need faith. We need all three of these elements if we are to have a new heart. You need confession, repentance, and faith. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing that he is able to forgive us our sins, that his blood being shed paid our debt fully. We need to no longer live for ourselves, but then we need to keep our eyes on him and follow his plan and see what he's doing which is what we see here at the end of the text. We began this chapter, you're like, how can anything good come from any of this? Like, what a mess, right? I mean, there's, there's not been too many parts where you're like, oh, this is really, I mean, there's all, this is kind of cringy, the whole chapter, right? But now we're like, okay, well, what, what, it looks like there's been a turn here by Judah. Now what? Well, we find out there's not just one child, there's two when the time of her labor, Tamar's labor, came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Another, like, crazy pregnancy story in the book of Genesis, right? But, but, but again, God is showing, I'm going to have my way here. And Zerah, it would seem, was the oldest child. That's what the, the midwife said. But even in the womb, there's this change. And, and, and what we see then is that God's plan is going to go through the line of Paris. You read the book of Ruth, which is a great, if you're kind of like, what would, what, 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 how could I add to my learning this week? Read the book of Ruth. Because a very interesting story happens about the need for a kinsman redeemer, someone who would help a woman in need. It's a very different story than this story. But they say, may you be like Tamar to Ruth. In what way? That she would have a child. And what we find is now there's this line from Perez to Ruth to King David. And from King David right through to the Messiah. What you would intend for evil, God intends for good. What, what, like, how incredible is that? Like, what a redeemer. 
Like if, if God isn't able to do this, we're all in trouble. And I pray that everyone here has a Judah story. And you can say, I, I get it. Some of you were like three, okay? So you're like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I knew I was a sinner, but it wasn't Judah's story, right? Okay, it was a little different, okay? But some of you are like, I, I can relate to Judah's story like, like a lot, a lot. But he's given me a new heart. All of these things had blocked me from God, but now he's given me a new heart. Well, maybe you're like, I'm still not convinced that Judah had changed. I want us just to look at Genesis 44 as we end. Genesis 44, you can flip over if you want. Okay, fast forward. Joseph is now second in power to Pharaoh. We're going to get to these chapters. I can't wait. But I just want to, I want to just see something here with the life of Judah. Judah has changed. The last time there was a favored brother, now it's Benjamin. Last time it was Joseph. He was the one who was responsible for him being sold into slavery. Now, the favored son, Benjamin, what will Judah do now? Because Joseph's like, I want that kid. Because <laughs> he's got, this is kind of sense of humor a little bit, okay? He, he, he made the boy sweat a little bit, which is, I think, is appropriate, okay? And, 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 and so now Judah is explaining to Joseph why he can't have Benjamin. He says in verse 32, For your servant became a pledge for safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that I would bring, would find my father. I mean, what a difference. He's like, please take me as your slave. A 180 degree difference. And I pray that everyone has this story in their life. You were walking in sin, but God convicted you of your sin. You repented, you placed your faith in him, and now you're walking in him. If you have never placed your hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to just encourage you this morning. He is a God who forgives. There is no sin too great that he can't forgive. And so I pray that even now the Spirit is convicting you of the seriousness of your situation and that you're repentant and you're confessing it to him. And even now he's making you his child. Believers, we can still separate ourselves from God with a new heart. You know what I'm talking about. When you have unrepentant sin in your life, it separates you from him. You can't draw close to the throne and have all your garbage with you. And you know that. And I pray even now God would show you, if you have garbage in your life, sin in your life that needs to be repented of. And then you lay it down before the throne and you thank him for his forgiveness anew and you walk in him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you know our hearts. You know everything about us. Judah's sin separated him from you just as our sins once did, God. That, God, you are faithful. And because Christ has come and took our wrath upon himself, God, we now can be reconciled to you no longer separated from you. Lord, thank you for that grace. Thank you for that mercy in our life. And God, I pray that the Spirit would have his way in our lives here. For those who would be watching online, for those who are here in this room, God, have your way. Break down that wall of pride. Break down that stubbornness, God, and have your way in that person's life. Help them not to cling to their sin anymore. But Lord, lay it down before your throne knowing, God, that you would forgive, knowing that you would restore them as your child. Some, not risk restoration, but for the first time, Lord, that they would be given a new heart and a new mind, given your spirit, Lord, that they might live for you. God, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name.
Miss Dennison. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca.